When was the last time you felt somewhat anxious? When was the last time maybe you perhaps felt uneasy or concerned? And here's, here's my follow-up question. When you thought about the time you had some anxiety or concern, then what did you do about it? This past week, I saw this headline on several social media sites, and it's this. Holding money in your hand can reduce stress levels and minimize pain. According to several reports, holding money may, quote, trigger feelings of financial security, which can in turn reduce stress and anxiety. Additionally, researchers claim that focusing on material objects including money, can distract the mind from experiencing pain. What do you think? Should we all start carrying more cash in our wallets and purses? Now, I, I sincerely doubt I'll see some of you after the service standing in the lobby holding a bunch of $20 bills and trying to breathe deeply to calm yourselves down. But, but even if holding money in your hand isn't your thing, the, the truth is we all on some level and at some time we experience moments and situations where we feel anxious, don't we? We feel nervous. We feel just something heavy on our, on our hearts or our chest. I know I do. Indeed, the difficulties of life can come in a variety of forms, can they not? In fact, think with me for a moment. If, if we had it, you don't have to say it out loud, but what would we say, what would we categorize as some of the storms of life? Maybe a, maybe a health crisis? Maybe difficulty in a marriage? What about a demanding job? Or an unmet desire? Or what about maybe a lost opportunity, right? You know what storms can do to boats? They can do a lot of things. But one of the things that they can do is they can cause boats to drift. Can't they? Indeed, you know what is arguably the most dangerous aspect to the storms of life, these things where we often find ourselves anxious and worried and concerned? You know what's one of the most dangerous aspects to the storms of life? They can tempt Christians to drift. To drift away from Christ. I mean, is it not true that it's not calm seas that entitle people to drift or entice people to drift, but often choppy waters. It's in those moments that we can be tempted to be dull of hearing, right? Indeed, when the wind and the waves 
of the cares and concerns of this world beat against us, are we not vulnerable in those moments to give way to the sinful pleasures of this world? So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, that is this. What do we need to withstand what arguably all of us are going to experience, and that's the difficulties and the storms and the suffering and the hardships of life. It, when, when all around we experience hardships and uncertainty, what can keep us from drifting away from Christ? What can keep us from drifting from Christ when suffering and hardship falls upon us? Well, this I want to suggest is the very question the author of Hebrews answers in our text this morning. If you've been with us any length of time, as we've been studying through this book, you'll recall how we've mentioned before how the original readers of the book of Hebrews experienced a variety of difficulties. And like many today, when the waves of suffering or rejection or hardship came crashing upon them, they were tempted to drift to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we'll see in the weeks to come, perhaps their greatest temptation was to turn back to Judaism as Jewish believers. So, so what did they need back then? And what do we need today to keep us from drifting? But rather to remain steady in the storms of life. Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. That's page 1004 in that paperback Bible that we provide out in the lobby. Last week, we studied chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. And you'll recall that the main point of that passage was this, and that is God wants His character to encourage you, Christian, to lay hold of his promise. God wants his character, who he is, his attributes, to encourage you to lay hold of his promise. One of the things we talked about last week as we worked our way through that text is the incredible encouragement it is that God cares for his own. God loves his people. And one of his great desires out of a love for his people is that they would be encouraged. Not distraught, but encouraged to run the race of faith well. God wants us to lay hold of all his promises, his future promises that he has in store for us in Christ. So how does God encourage us? He does so with the greatest thing there is to encourage someone, and that's himself. The most glorious being in the universe knows there's, there's nothing greater he can use to encourage his own than himself. So we looked at last week how to encourage us to, that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. That God's promise that he will bring us to final salvation. He wanted us to be encouraged by the pledge. God pledges himself his purpose is unchanging, and his person cannot lie. God promises to bring his own to final salvation. So as an encouragement to us, he swears by himself, 
that he's going to make it happen. Well, now look with me at what the author writes next in the final two verses here of chapter 6. And this is where we're just going to focus this morning. And here we see what is needed for us not to drift amidst the storms of life. Follow along as I read chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What? What is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul? He says, a hope. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good, good word. Uh, how many of you enjoy to fish? Do we have some fishermen here or fisherwomen? Am I saying that right? Fisher people? Okay. I'll just use the common vernacular, fishermen. You know, fishermen tend to be incurable optimists, can't they? Right? I recently read about a guy who asked his neighbor how his fishing was going, and he's like, great. He's like, last week, I went out for four hours and didn't catch a thing. He's like, yesterday, I got the same result in only three hours. <laughs> now, uh, many can, and it's understandable, many can often confuse optimism with biblical hope. To be true, biblical hope is optimistic, but it differs greatly from worldly optimism or positive thinking. Biblical hope is an optimism based on certainty and truth, not upon a cheery disposition that looks on the bright side, like it only took me three hours this time. Christian, you who have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, notice carefully, Christian, what the author says you possess and that I possess. It's not something we need to go get. It's something we already have. Notice what he says we possess in verse 19. What does it say? It says we have. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. The thing we need to not drift away when the storms of life come upon us. And what is that anchor for our soul? What's the next phrase? Hope. Hope. However, this isn't some kind of cheery optimism. Nor is it a hope that everything is going to go the way I want it to go. It's even better than that. What is this hope? Well, as this text in the rest of Hebrews makes clear, it's 
all that God promises us in Jesus Christ. This is the hope. And this hope has been given to us and we have it as an anchor for our soul. As John Piper has correctly written, he says, the hope is something set before us. It is heaven and the blessing promised in verse 14 of chapter 6 and the sum of all the good that God has sworn to be for us in Jesus. Faith, you know what you and I need to keep from drifting away from the Lord in seasons of hardship, whether that be a season of hardship in your marriage or with the health concern of a loved one or with a job or dealing with a difficult child or whatever it might be. You know what we need in these hard seasons so that we will not drift away? Hope. Hope. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we have that. This hope is to be an anchor for our souls. Indeed, we can summarize the author's point with this sentence, and that's this. Christians have a sure hope anchored in heaven. Christians, and I'm using my words carefully, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the very thing needed to keep us steady and to not get destroyed or to drift in the hardships and difficulties of life. And again, please note, this is what we possess as believers. He says, we have this. The question is, is that what we turn to in season of hardships? Or when the storms of life come crashing down upon us? Do we place our hope and find our hope in other things, even silly things like money? Or maybe that's not so silly. Have, have you ever been driving and seen this on the back of a car? Have you seen this? Uh, tell me, what, what does this symbol represent? Christianity, right? It represents Christianity. However, did you know that the symbol for Christianity in the first century wasn't a fish or even a cross? No, you know what, you know what the symbol was for Christianity in the first century? It was an anchor. As Christian artist Michael Card has correctly stated in his album Soul Anchor, he writes this, the first century symbol wasn't the cross. It was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified and then set ablaze as torches at one of Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. And you know why? You know why that symbol brought encouragement to Christians? Because it reminded them of what this text teaches, and that is 
they have a sure hope anchored for them in heaven. So here's the million dollar question, and that is, why is our hope certain? Why is it sure? Well, notice carefully, this hope, I'm going to suggest as we look at this text, this hope functions and does what all good anchors do. I mean, what makes an anchor helpful? Not to be Captain Obvious, but an anchor is helpful in three ways. First, it's connected to you. Second, it won't move. No matter how bad things are on the surface of the water, an anchor is only helpful if it doesn't move. And then third, an anchor is in a realm you cannot reach. And faith, as we're about to see, our hope functions as an anchor for our souls precisely because of what Christ has done. So notice first, I want to direct your attention, that our hope is secure because number one, it is attached to Christ. Look again at verse 19 in the first part of 20. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is that? A hope. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I, I recently read about a husband who uh, took his wife fishing. And they rented a small single-engine boat, one of the little jobs. And when they got out there into the little lake and they got where they wanted to be to start fishing, uh, the husband asked the wife to go ahead and put down the anchor. However, when she did, she did not notice that the rope attached to the anchor, the other end of the rope, was not attached to the boat. So they put the anchor in and then they just saw the string go... Only now, tell me, did that do them any good? No, of course not. And they both knew that and they had a good laugh. You see, what makes an anchor helpful is that it's connected to you. I mean, if someone says, hey, I fitted your boat with a good and solid heavy anchor that will grip any sea bottom, only I have not made it fastened to the boat, would that give you any kind of encouragement? No. And I don't think that is the image the author has in mind here. Faith, you know why our hope anchored in heaven is sure? Because we're attached to Christ, our forerunner. Amen? Notice, whereas a ship's anchor descends deep into the seabed, a Christian's hope ascends deep into heaven, doesn't it? And it's sure because we're attached to Christ by faith. Christian, our anchor isn't just dangling out there. No, it's firmly fixed in heaven and it's firmly attached to your heart because of Christ. What an encouragement, amen? 
I mean, think of elsewhere in the scriptures where it talks about, I think of John 10, where Jesus says that he'll lose none whom the Father gives to me, that we are in the Father's hand and then we're also in the Son's hand on top of that. Right? Our, our hope is sure because we're attached to Christ by faith. But then second, our hope is secure because it's accessible through Christ. Again at verse 19, it says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, have you ever considered that an anchor is only useful when it is not seen? Consider how on the deck of a boat, an anchor does not serve to steady the vessel. But when it is cast into the sea beyond what the passengers can see, that's when the anchor steadies the ship. Now notice what we learn about our hope here. We learn that it enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This refers to the holies of holies inside the tabernacle, and we're going we're to talk about more about that in a moment, okay? But for now, don't miss the obvious point that the author is trying to make. Tell me, if something is behind a curtain, I don't know, what, what a kindness God has given this as an illustration, right? If something is behind a curtain, can it be seen? No. Just like an anchor. Because it's in its depths. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, helps us feel the precious truth this passage is communicating. Spurgeon writes this. He says, In a vessel you feel the pull of the anchor. And the more the wind rages, and the more you feel that anchor holds you. Like the boy with his kite. The kite is up in the clouds where he cannot see it, but he knows it is there, for he feels its pull. So our good hope has gone up to heaven, and he is pulling and drawing us to him. And he goes on, he says this, We cannot see our anchor. It would be of no use if we could see it. Its use begins when it is out of sight, but it pulls, and we can feel the heavenly pressure. This is what our hope does. It keeps us steady when the storms of suffering and the waves of doubt come crashing upon us. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have the waves of doubt filling your vessel. Or maybe you're feeling crushed and discouraged and weary with the suffering of life. Christian, allow the heavenly pressure to keep you steady. Allow the hope you have anchored in heaven to keep your head above water. Don't turn to the things of this world. Don't hold money in your hand. 
Don't go to the bottle. Keep turning back to your hope in heaven. Then finally, our hope is secure because it's achieved by Christ. And this is, look at what we see there in verses 19 and 20. So again, just hear it again. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's, it's at a realm we cannot reach in our own strength. But where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As several commentators have pointed out, and I referenced this a moment ago, the curtain here in verse 19 is a reference to the veil that hung across the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and concealed the Ark of the Covenant where God in His glory met the high priest once a year as he, the high priest, brought a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So, what's the point that the author is getting at by referencing this? What's the point of saying that our hope is, is an anchor lodged in the heavenly holies of holies where God's glory dwells? What's the point of that? Was the following verse, verse 20 explains, this, this holy of holies, this very place where God's presence dwells, is precisely where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for us, which means we will enter with him someday. And notice, Jesus has gone as a high priest. This is not insignificant. He has gone as a high priest, but not in the order of Aaron and Levi, who had to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people, and who died and had to replace year by year, and who offered the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away the sins. No, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies once for all with his own infinitely precious blood, his own indestructible life, so that his atoning work for us is perfect and lasts forever. This is what verse 20 means when it says that Jesus has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, our hope is only possible through the atoning work of Jesus. Amen? You see, like an anchor, our hope is located in a realm we cannot reach on our own. We cannot just come trotting up into God's presence. As sinners, we cannot do this. Yet the good news of the Bible is that Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live. Then on the cross, He died the death we deserved to die for our sin. You see, our sin has earned us something, and that is eternal damnation. For God to be just, He must punish sin. But friend, please hear me. Instead of damning us to hell, God has made provision for our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, hear me. 
You can be forgiven of your sin. The guilt and the shame and the burden that you feel. And this, uh, this past week I was, or actually two weeks ago, one of my uh, favorite questions I get asked. I was, I was at the gym, it was Saturday, and a guy came up to me and said, Aaron, uh, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I'm just like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? This guy doesn't know the Lord. And, and I had the, the wonderful opportunity to share with him, you know that the sin we have and the guilt and the burden we experience, you know what our heart craves? Atonement. We seek relief. We need forgiveness. We need someone to satisfy the punishment we have earned for our sin. And Jesus has done that. And then he rose triumphantly from the grave, proving himself to be who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And my friend, hear me. Are you one of these Christians? Have, has there been a moment in time when you have received the free gift of salvation simply by faith? If not, let today be the day of salvation for you. There's no secret handshake. There's no hocus-pocus words. The Bible calls you to trust, not yourself, but to own your sin, acknowledge your sin, and to trust that Christ's work alone is sufficient to save you. You see, as this passage teaches, because of Christ we have access to the very presence of God. As Albert Muller has written in his commentary on this passage, he says, As our great high priest, Jesus has purchased our salvation and assured us of the promises of God. Thus, Jesus' atoning work on the cross predicates the Christian's hope and anchors the Christian's soul. Friend, I don't know what all this next week has in store for you, but Christian, the next time you feel anxious, the next time the waves of hardship crash upon you, don't, don't get out some 20s and hold them in your hand to calm you down. Oh, my prayer, my prayer for us as a church is that the big truths of our God would flood our hearts and minds that we would have a confidence knowing that our God is good and he does good and he will complete the good work that he started in us. Christian, remember the great hope you have anchored in heaven and may that great reality give you peace for today. Amen? Let's pray.